Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm an Izzy slash maybe Alexi. I'm Rebecca, and I'm a Pearl slash Moody. I'm Teresa, and I'm definitely just a Moody. And together we are Big Little Podcast, back to talk about episode four of Little Fires Everywhere, The Spider Web. Um, Carolyn, do you want to start us off with a recap? I'd love to. All right. This episode kicks off with a flashback to 1992 where uh, Elena's friend Linda is in a hospital and we are seeing her uh, tragic troubles with pregnancy. Um, And then we cut back to 1997 and now it is Halloween and Pearl and Lexi and their friend Serena are dressed like the Spice Girls. Well, Two out of three of them, anyway. For some reason, there are two posh spices. How did these girls not get this act together? Uh, Anyway, meanwhile, um, Elena has put two and two together and has realized that Mia is the link between uh, Linda's baby problems and uh, what is going on. So she goes about trying to solve things and does this by offering to pay off uh, BB with $10,000. The tension between Elena and Mia is rising considerably with this situation and eventually leads to her firing Mia, which also may be just jeopardizing Mia and Pearl's living situation. She also accuses Mia of being a bad mother for not putting Pearl's needs first. And Mia tells her that it is not her fault that she has made these choices and that Elena has good choices because she is rich and white. Mia next makes the very confusing decision to make the $30,000 off of her naked self-portrait art to help the practical stranger Bibi hire an attorney, leading us all to say, why didn't she just sell this all along and help herself and Pearl out? Pearl, uh is so done with things going on with Mia and all of this that she tries to run away when Mia says that she can never go to the Richardsons again. She runs right to the Richardsons and is going to be spending the night there. Mia tracks her down and stands outside their house screaming in the rain like a lunatic, totally normal. Izzy, meanwhile, has started running to Mia because her own mother is giving her articles about Lilith Fair with post-it notes on it. Meanwhile, uh, Lexi is bragging about having sex, um, which takes us all back to high school when your first friend to have sex acts like they are better than you and are also some sort of sex guru. Um, Also, in some sort of ominous foreshadowing, her friend Serena tells her she's glowing. Uh, which is concerning. All of this sex talk seems to lead Pearl to the decision that she needs to keep up with the Joneses, and she beds Trip while tutoring his hot dumbass in math. And we get the final reveal of the art project that we saw in all of the trailers for this that kind of ruined it. It's a portrait of Elena in stripes, and uh, Mia lights fire to it, and that's that. Episode four. It does end rather (laughs) abruptly. Um, Well, since there can't possibly be a serious show about women that isn't really just all about being a mother, let's talk about mothers. Um, I I mean, who better to talk about motherhood really than three childless women? So uh, I was about to say, we're very well (laughs) equipped to talk about this. Um, So have you guys watched any of the extras? for the show no you know the, no like, well there i watched a couple of them one of which is just a really weird lexus commercial and um but there's <laughs> another one where they talk about this idea of the mothers we're born to and the mothers we find along the way and since no one's kids seem to like them and are looking for other mothers in this show um i find it a little strange that mia is so hung up on biology um i'm wondering if you think this guy this show has an opinion about the mothers we're born to versus the ones we find like does this show have an opinion about who's the more important mother figure 
I think it's certainly pushing us to believe that the nurture and the who you're drawn to is more significant in terms of like comfort than who you have. But I think in terms of like defining the personalities and the choices, the show is setting up us up to believe that the, you know, there is that strong biological tie. So I think it's trying to do mm-hmm. both. Um, I think that, yes, I agree with what you said, Rebecca, that they're, they, it is trying to show us that both are important. And I do think both are important. I do think that uh, there is something to be said for that family that you choose in every sense. And, and for like young women, they often find a woman other than their mother who is like a mentor or a role model that they look up to. And, and we all do that in some sense with like family that we choose throughout our lives, like friends that become like family and the people that we surround ourselves with. Um, so I think that this is kind of examining that, but it's specifically looking at it through that eye, that eye of the troubled teenager who is looking for that kind of connection and that kind of guidance. I think where this gets more interesting than the traditional dynamic of a young woman looking for an older, you know, role model that's not necessarily her mother is this idea of pseudo parenting the child of somebody that you really don't like. So the fact that the mothers are working at cross purposes and now at the end of this episode are really set up to be enemies and and really working on different agendas. I, I think that makes it a little more interesting, the idea of trying to be a good mother figure to somebody whose own mother you think is negligent or you, is a racist or whatever, depending on which mother's side you're taking. I think that's where it gets a little more intriguing to me. So, and we also have, you know, we have this idea about mothers, but then we also have these two mothers butting in on behalf of other mothers, right? So... We've got Elena, who is basically trying to buy a baby, and she's offering visitation and immigration, help with immigration, which actually makes a ton of sense to me. Like we talked about in the last episode where, like, this could solve the problem where the McCulloughs are, you know, the ones who are responsible, but the kid still gets to know Bibi. But at the same time, we have Mia who, you know, Bibi says to her, like, why did you do this to me? Basically, like... I I had come, you know, I may have been upset about my decision, but you're the one who's pushing this on me and she's the one who's pushing Bibi to fight for the baby. And so I'm I guess I'm just wondering like, you know, it seems like Mia is the one who's really coming down on the side of biology and Elena is sort of a little more understanding that like because she has this relationship with her own kid that she doesn't totally understand and doesn't have a big connection with and she's also got this friend who clearly loves this baby more than anything that she's not biologically related to like and and it just seems so odd to me that Mia is not the one this artsy fartsy lady who as far as we know has like completely abandoned the family she was born into um why is she so obsessed with biology? I'm wondering if that, I mean, again, I have not read the book yet. And I know that they've taken a lot of liberties, it sounds like, up until now. I am wondering if there are if there are things that we're going to learn as this goes on, why she feels so that this is so important that, you know, this ownership of a child, mm-hmm. like what, where that comes from. I'm interested in seeing what that is rooted in for her and and why why this is such a hot like such a big button pusher for her that that's funny because one of the questions I wanted to ask you at the end of this episode but let's just get to it now is like if you had to guess what the secret is that Mia is keeping what would you say um you know I I don't know there's a part of me that suspects and then I'm wondering if I'm just jumping to this because of uh, Big Little Lies that is Pearl the product of a rape. Interesting. Okay. Um, and that that makes me question, does this, is, is this something that, you know, Pearl, like, is hers, is only hers? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, but I also feel like that isn't it. Uh, so I I have no idea. I 
I, I'm kind of, I, I, I don't know what to expect, especially after this episodes three and four. I really feel like now this show is like building and there's a lot more layers and I'm getting a little bit more into the tangle here where it's harder to see and predict for me hmm. who knows nothing. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I can um, answer because I've read it. <laughs> no. Yeah, I know. Um, so let's talk about, so we're talking a little bit about Mia and her sense of ownership. So I want to talk about her like completely irrational response in protecting her basically grown ass daughter from perfectly nice people. So first of all, she, she tells Elena that the only reason she took the job at the house was to protect Pearl from Elena or maybe the Richardsons in general. Is this a normal thing for a mother to do? No. I don't think so. <laughs> No, nothing. I, mean, I don't know. Nothing Mia does is normal. Let's just establish that as our baseline here. Um, that she just is making irrational choices, emotionally based irrational choice, which most irrational stuff is is emotional. But I think that it, it is so curious to me as to why she sees this family as such a threat to her family and to her and to Pearl. Like right from the beginning, she's on the offensive with them. I mean, I think it's like Why? anybody though, if you, offense comes from a feeling of guilt. So I think looking at this very traditional family structure that's been something that she's been unable to do for her daughter, whether it's from her personality or her just unwillingness or her inability, I think that the fact that she's watching her daughter sort of want this and be drawn to a world that she hasn't been able to provide that's probably an enormous amount of guilt that's manifesting in this very aggressive way i mean that's i'm I'm really trying to empathize with this character and i don't think the show is making it especially easy but i I sure am trying i am beginning to wonder at this point in the series as i began to like get all these kind of questions going in my mind they move around so much where else have they lived I don't know if the book answers this or if we ever really find this out. I mean, they've kind of said things here and there. But why did they choose this Shaker Heights neighborhood knowing that it seems to be very close-knit, upscale, you know, predominantly white? What made her choose this location? And what was her what was her tie to this? What was her draw to this? There, there are some hints in the book that that she's sort of Mia is sort of finally understanding that Pearl needs more stability. And we get a little bit of that from the first episode where she's like, you promised we could stay. And Mia is kind of like, I said, we could think about it kind of thing. Um, but in the book, you know, there's, there's a scene or there's a passage at least where um, we learn that Pearl got sick. She had pneumonia or something and was in the hospital. And Mia kind of realizes, like, if she, if the worst were to happen and she were to die, that this kid would have lived a rootless life with no attachment to anyone or anything. And what kind of life is that for a kid? And so you do get this inkling that, like, she's finally realized the error of her ways and really wants to settle down somewhere. Okay. But I don't think that's the case in this show. I, I think this is another place where it sort of differs a little bit. And this is just another stop where she's saying, yeah, maybe we can stay. Because you would think you, if you want your kid to be successful, you would at least let them, like, stay in the high school for more than a couple years so that they also can actually the, like, graduate. The $300, like, multi-room lawn apartment. I mean, I'd stay there forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure, for, for sure. Like, what are you thinking? I'd be like, great, I'm here. This is where I live now, for good. <laughs> but I guess from the show perspective alone, knowing this character from these four episodes that I have known her, it, at this point, feels like this, like, opportunistic choice that she had chosen an area like this as this kind of skeptical forced outsider and and she for and she's forcing it upon herself to be this sort of outsider this like interloper this observer of life and that's like where her art comes from so it seems yeah, like she wants to be the alt girl the one that ever mm-hmm. oh, you know fuck the society fuck the system kind of right thing, which is a choice yeah, I, I don't know. I I'm struggling to understand the character's motivation to move to Shaker and I, I don't think that's something 
I, I think in the book, it's, it's as Teresa said, it's made a little more clear. But in this, it just seems like there's so many other places somewhere like Mia would have an easier time. Is she just, you know, a glutton for punishment? Does she like feeling like the outsider to this degree? Like, I, I'm just confused. Is it, it doesn't feel like she's trying to take advantage of a situation as much as she likes wallowing in a sense of feeling like, oh, well, these people will never understand me or my struggle. It's odd. Right, but the biggest thing that we need to look at in this episode is that she has this connection to Sotheby's and is able to sell art for $30,000. Yeah, I know. There's, I mean, in the book, they you learn about this connection, I feel like. I don't know if it's earlier because there's still some other stuff we don't know that I feel like you know in the book before you know about this. Yeah, for this sure. This agent. That's, um, the agent is referenced early on in the book. Yeah. And you do understand that she sells art when she needs to, basically. Um, you know, when Pearl was in the hospital and they had a hospital bill, she sold some pieces. And But that she's very reserved in what she sells. And it seems like maybe she doesn't even sell it under her name or that, like, she's she's almost unknown but people will buy her stuff it's weird is i i I don't want to call her a bank i think the implication is it's like she's so so good that people will buy Mm -hmm. it regardless of like her having fame and notoriety attached to it which is fine but in the case of this last piece like she didn't take the picture right right yeah that's the the other that's the other question that i have here with this who took that uh and and also like it's a photograph like, did she lose the negative? Can she never reprint this? Yeah, well, apparently, like, her photos are, like, one-off deals, and that's what makes them art. Okay, fair. Yes. But uh, I just was so fixated on this moment in this episode that this is, like, that all along she could have been doing this and that this made me kind of resentful to her, towards her in the way that I feel like Pearl is. Because Pearl has to know on some level Mm-hmm. That it's like she's being played here in in her mother's game of this like alternative lifestyle and all of this like we're gonna live this way and uh, you know this off the grid and all this art stuff that she is kind of holding on to this bohemian artist life, which apparently she has this following and this ability to kind of, that she could have grounded them. Mm-hmm. It really like, I, I I felt this one that if I was Pearl, I'd be losing it. If I had found out that we'd been struggling all this time and that we could have $30,000 is a lot of money guys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a lot of money in 1997, especially for one photo. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there's an explanation. I think Rebecca and I probably both know who took that photo and why she's able to sell it for so much. But um, and also reasons why she doesn't sell more of her art. Um, Oh, okay. Well, fair enough. Right. But but it would ruin a lot of things to tell you about them. But um, but again, also Pearl would not know any of that. And so she would have every right to continue being angry as fuck about like the way her mother forces her to live. Um, and even knowing what you do know in the book, I don't think it really excuses the fact that like they are living in a way that is hand to mouth and Pearl has really felt like she's suffered mm-hmm. because of that. And the fact that there could have been stability earlier on is a problem, I think, that that's a choice like integrity in, in some artistic level is more important than stability. Maybe that's part of the question right. the show is trying to and the book are trying to ask like, is Mia's artistry and preserving that and that artistic identity more important than her role as a mother? And I think that's where it can get a little interesting because as Teresa said at the beginning of this, you know, I guess because it has to be a comment on older women, it has to be about motherhood. In some ways, Mia's story is a rejection of motherhood and a rejection of fulfilling a traditional role that Elena has been born to fill. And Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to say and look at her and be like, okay, that's obviously objectively a terrible mother because we can all say her her parenting is poor. But the fact that we're all conditioned to even make that judgment and the the father figure is completely absent and that's not even been a a subject. We don't know anything about the father figure at this point. I just think it's interesting the way that, you know, it's so easy to hate Mia. And I feel the same way too. I'm like, God, why is she torturing this poor, beautiful daughter she has? But 
it comes into a question of, you know, how fit somebody is to be a mother. And is that your whole identity once you have a kid? I don't know. I don't have children, so it's hard for me to say. And I don't want children, so <laughs> it's tricky. Well, mm-hmm. I think I think there's a there's a big difference between something being your whole identity and just making an attempt to, to not completely ruin your child's life, right? So, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. She could she could live hand to mouth, or she they you know they could move to Santa Fe and live the artist's life in some little adobe hut somewhere and not move every three months, you know? right? And like, give her the stability she wants, right? And like or. Even if they moved every few years, I mean, that's in some ways might be harder, but there is a middle ground here. And but much like Elena's lifestyle is a completely extreme version of a sort of um, middle class American suburban life. Um, Mia's is the extreme vagabond artist lifestyle, right? Like neither of these people right, but are if you're anywhere in it- the middle. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're going to look at it from the perspective, though, from the angle of motherhood and somebody Mm -hmm. trying to be the best possible mother, you can definitely argue that a character like Elena, everything she does Mm -hmm. is in her mind the right and best choice for her children. Like her whole life is built around this family unit and giving them the best and providing the best and being the best. There are wrongs with that as well. But the problem with Mia is that her choices, to me, seem a lot more selfish. Right. And less, you know, Pearl is not, I don't think, always her primary consideration, which then makes it seem even more bizarre when she, like, flies off the handle and is trying to control Pearl and saying that she's, you're mine. And yet so many of her choices don't seem like they are making they are being made for Pearl. Well, I think one of the, so one of the most interesting lines in the book, I think, and really what this story comes down to in the book, and I think to some degree it's, this is what's getting washed over by having added, you know, levels of tension in terms of race into the story, is that there's a point at which Mia says to Elena in the book, you honestly can't fathom that anyone would want to live differently than you. And it really like strikes at the heart of Elena. Like she thinks she's got the life everyone wants and it's baffling to her that anyone would not want that life. But I think the same sort of goes for Mia, at least in the show where she's kind like the Mia in the book, I don't, I feel like isn't as judgmental. She's more of like a, you know, like an objective observer of life. She's way more sympathetic. Right. And this Mia is very, very judgmental. Like you can, like you get the sense that she moved to Shaker specifically to like catalog these weird suburbanites in their natural habitat, you know? And although Mia is doing that a little bit in the book, um, it just comes up, she comes off as more sympathetic to everybody and empathetic to everybody. In the show, I you, you know, you start to get the idea that Mia is just as rigid and we've talked about this a little bit in terms of the controlling of Pearl and and Izzy, but she's just as rigid in what she thinks is acceptable. She just has a different idea of what's acceptable. Um which sort of brings us to the fact that Pearl is straight up putting the moves on Trip while all he wants is like a geometry tutor. Um, meanwhile, Mia's over at Elena's house pretending she's there to like keep an eye on Pearl. <laughs> so, but luckily, Trip can't keep it up. I think that's what we were supposed to take from that scene. Is yes. that? Well, I yeah. think he maybe prematurely. Maybe that uh, yeah. issue. Well, I thought I mean, it was more of that because he's to... so into her, he couldn't control the pain. Hmm. Well, I think also, like, he, he at the end of the day, is like, you know, it is his brother. He knows that his brother likes mm-hmm. this girl. And I think a part of him, that, that would affect, that would affect the situation too. Like, he's not a total, Tripp's not a total asshole. He may be shallow and he may not be that bright, but he's not like, you know, He's not going to, like, fuck his... Yeah, he's not a monster who's going to fuck his brother. Well, he already did. It just wasn't to completion. Well, he did, but he... Yes. (laughs) He stopped himself. Or maybe... Yeah. Mm. Or his body. There's a lot of ways that could have gone wrong. His body stopped it. Yeah. But the bottom line is, he ended the situation like an asshole. 
He didn't explain. He really he, did. He blamed he really it on does. her and he slammed the door and he didn't. I mean, I don't think he knew he was taking her virginity. I don't think. Oh, that come was, on. How did he not know? She is a. She know. looks like a child. They're children. He knew. boys are stupid. Boys at that age are stupid. That's true. I, there, I didn't hear a lot of like consent and like, you know, preamble going on. It was just like, all right, sign and cosign, want to bang? It escalated quickly. And it yeah. didn't escalate as quickly in the book either. So well, again, like, like I said in my recap, I think that Pearl is sort of fueled into this. I mean, we know she's had the hots for him since the start, but I think she is just fueled by uh, Lexi's whole, you know, talk about her sexual experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Lexi I, I think, also doesn't think of sex. I mean, her mother is is Mia, so her understanding of sex is a much more casual, relaxed view than you know. I think Lexi's understanding is though Lexi is trying to play the cool older girl that's now suddenly had sex for the first time and is you know Doctor Ruth all of a sudden. Right. Exactly. Um, so with Lexi, you know, going into this whole sex guru thing and talking about whatever exciting stuff they're going to try on prom night, I can't. I don't even want to imagine. What? Uh, yeah, can yeah, we, can what we guess what it was? Each other. Good just Lord. for fun. Butt stuff? I think it was probably something really, like, not that interesting. It was like, she was like, we're going to do it doggy style or something. You know, it's, I don't think it's anything crazy because she's had sex, like, two times. So, like, everything is interesting. Yeah, I was wondering... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I really, I actually was so mad that they weren't going to let us know what she thought was a big, exciting move. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that like was like a turning point for Pearl to be like, oh, well, you know, she's doing it and this is the next step and everything with, with her mother, how, you know, she talks about her mom and, and her free sex opinions and everything. So I, I think that that pushed Pearl to act faster on this. Plus, I think she thought that's how she was going to seal the deal with Trip. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's interesting. I don't want to, I don't think we want to get into this too much, but like that all goes down very differently in the book. And, Way differently. And I'm not sure I like this version better. Like this, like, I mean, I guess it kind of has to go down this way because they have him at the party trying to help Moody like score with her. Like he's trying to be a good brother. He's trying to tell him what to do and you know, that sort of fails. But then the moment they turn around, he's having sex with the girl his brother's like basically in love with. I don't know. I, it, I'm i torn about how this all went down. Well, I also think it's interesting because like I said in the last episode where Lexi uses sex to save her relationship and to manipulate her relationship, Pearl does the same thing here. Like I said, she mm-hmm. is trying to you know, steal this deal with Trip. she, she manipulates using sex. And that's a very, to me, I I mean, I I think that that's a really interesting uh, phenomenon for a teen girl. And I think in some ways, like it was, it's a little bit empowering because, you know, I, I feel like there, there used to be kind of more in media, you'd see the boy be the instigator. And here we're Mm -hmm. seeing the, these young women be this little, you know, the little tigress going after it, which feels more comfortable. I am like uncomfortable at the thought of, cause you know, now looking back, you're like, you're a baby, but mm-hmm. it also feels more comfortable and, and more like, you know, female positive <laughs> to have it be the girls, be the one initiating and controlling with it. But it's still kind of, there's something a little jarring and off with it that feels a little bit I think too we're gonna- mature. We're going to see more of the consequences. I think we saw a little bit of that with Lexi's feelings after Trip stormed off. And that, and then when he purposely sits away from her in the math class, that feeling of rejection after having sex with someone and then feeling like, oh, wow, they're not interested in me anymore. I think with Lexi, she's in still like the, the honeymoon glow period. And, you know, the other shoe is going to drop with her, too. So I don't mm-hmm. think this show is going to shy, shy away from the complexities of teenage sex which you know it's a topic that's brought up a lot because it is interesting that first time you engage in an act of physical intimacy with someone and all of the you know social cues surrounding that i also i think it's it in terms of what carolyn was talking about i think it's also interesting to think about like pearl as kind of being the asshole in this situation right like she knows how moody feels about her that's that's Mm -hmm. you'd have to be like i mean borderline blind to not notice that right oh, no, and she knows she, 
And she continues yeah. to go after his brother. Like, there's but she can't no help who she likes. Hot in she didn't ask well, Moody to develop feelings for her. Yes, that's but she true, has not but... been. She has not been forthright with him. No, about that. You know, she has allowed him to flirt. She has allowed him to come far into this, and yeah. has never once made it clear to him that she has these feelings. And I don't think she's made it clear to Lexi who she's buddied up with either. Right. Yeah, I mean, think about it the other way. Think If Moody was a girl and it was just her best friend who was like, ugh, I hate my brother, please don't date him, and then she did anyway, like, you'd be like, dick move. Like, there's oh, a yeah. million tears, guys out there. Yeah, that tears friendships apart. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone has seen that and experienced that. And, um, you know, that I, I, I do think that Pearl... This this was like the first time I started to kind of see Pearl in a different light. Like dare say like a little bit of seeing about a touches of her mother in here that she mm-hmm. probably wouldn't feel good about <laughs> when somebody said that she was a lot like her mother. I think uh just like Lexi is like her mother in a lot of ways, you know, that you can't help biology sometimes or the mm-hmm. nurturing that, you know, even regardless of biology, whoever you're raised with influences. But uh, Pearl is kind of, she's kind of the asshole here. She's not without blame. Yeah. She, very uncool, Pearl. We really liked you. It's not nice to do to Moody. Like, I mean, it's almost like if she had dated Moody and then went out with his best friend or something, you know, like it's on, it's on par to that, like, you could just I think I would have so much else. more of this an issue. This isn't the great love of your life. I, I just think if, like, they had done something physical or, you know, they held the hands when they were stoned and did the mm-hmm. Nirvana lyrics, but that hardly makes a relationship. So I, I think that if there had been more of a physical exchange between them, I would feel more betrayed. I think that the way she went about it is obviously, like, indicative of a 16-year-old girl thinking only about, like, who's hot and who she wants to bag. And I think that the trip thing mm-hmm. is more about, like, social clout attached to the hot popular jock than it is about trip you know like if you get down to it like she's got way more in common with moody they actually have a conversation but trip signifies everything that a high school girl is after i mean he is the ryan atwood he's the the oh uh, totally i I mean you can come with a million examples so of course that's who she's after the dylan mckay yeah Right, exactly. Dylan McKay. Like, that's what she's looking for. And she's got this, like, sad boy at her heels pining for her. And she doesn't want that. And she didn't ask for that. And she feels like she doesn't know how to let him down. And that's uncomfortable. And what she wants is trip. And that's what she goes after. And I don't think anybody handles it well. But again, these are 16-year-olds. Did anybody handle anything well when they were 16? I sure didn't. It makes me like, actually, Pearl more because I feel... No, well, Rebecca, you touched upon something interesting. And when you said that this is, like, a social climbing thing and that's what is creeping in here with pearl in general that you're that i'm seeing here is this kind of this desire to infiltrate and i mean every teen girl i mean it's kind of that high school journey for popularity and acceptance but in pearl's case it's sort of even more uh, you can really like see her like clawing up that mountain. You know what I mean? I loved she's- that scene when they first get to the Halloween party and she runs into Moody and Moody's like, Scary Spice, that's kind of racist. They made you to be Scary Spice. She's like, I, it was my idea to be Scary Spice. That whole exchange, also, she- I was like, it's, it, yeah. that was, a, I, I liked that. That felt really like true to both of their characters and, and her motivations in the scene. And it made me feel better about everything. Like, it, I could, I could oh, relate totally. to her more also, than if she was just behaving like this out of the blue. She nailed the scary spice look. Yeah, like, she really did. She had ringer. Really did. Yeah, I was like, yes. She looked Posh great. spices were both weak, but she killed it as scary. I, to me, that was like my favorite part of the episode in, in general. Like the part that made me laugh the most was that it, it was just such a perfect, like these teenage girls cannot get their act together. First of all, there are only three of them and they decide to go as the Spice Girls. <laughs> they couldn't find, like, two other friends to get in on this. These allegedly... Lexi is, like, is homecoming queen. She doesn't have two more friends that she can, like, And Ginger Spice is easily... Ginger and Baby are, like, the most fun ones. Right? Yeah, she didn't have some friends she could, like, slap a Union Jack mini dress on. Um, but... So that that was kind of a, a little bit of an eyebrow raise, but also hilarious. And the fact that she and her friend both desperately, she and Serena wanted to be posh so badly that they just both went with it. 
that is that was hilarious to me like so <laughs> i loved it um yeah I, honestly if i was pearl and i had that hair i would never stop going as scary spice i would just be like find a rotating cast of other women to like dress up as the other spice girls and make them go with me every year mm-hmm. and just like catalog myself as i age as scary spice which spice girl would you guys have been if you oh god were i actually did dress up as the spice girls in middle school with my friends and i was posh of course you were posh. I, nice. I don't know how that happened. I should have been. I, but I was never going to be sporty. Let's be real. I certainly wasn't baby. <laughs> my friend forced her. She chose Ginger right off the bat. I should have been Ginger. That was my destiny. But I ended up having. I didn't really like Posh, but she was definitely the worst singer. And she just, you know, always talk about looking like you're smelling shit all the time. Yeah. So I would have been Ginger Spice for obvious reasons. Oh, yeah. For sure. It's not obvious because this is a podcast, but I have red hair. So, um. (laughs) Oh, oh, it's been done. Carolyn, it's obvious. You've made it known. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I, I guess Ginger also always had like real good leopard print. I'm, I'm always a fan of leopard print. She had the best clothes. Yeah. If I could do it without being racist, I would probably want to be Scary Spice because she was the one who was kind of like, I don't know, I like it would be between her and Sporty because the rest of them were kind of like uh, just too far away from me personality wise. Um, but I wasn't really Sporty, but I also wasn't going to wear around like a mini dress either. So I, Scary I mean, is scary the one. I mean, Scary did have would. sick outfits too. Like the jumpsuits yeah. were amazing. Mm-hmm. My second choice would have been Sporty Spice because uh, she was a fierce dancer and could do the the do the mm-hmm. flips. I, I respect anyone right. who can tumble. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, now uh, that we've settled it that, is funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now we have a whole new intro. next episode. We're going to introduce ourselves as the two Spice Girls we are most. Yeah. Uh, we've answered America's burning question. Um, so let's talk about the quote heard around the world, which is. You didn't make good choices. You had good choices, which, to be fair, might be the best writing that this show has um, come up with so far. Is that in the book? Yes. It is. I couldn't remember. Yeah, I don't think so either. Well, Um, then I'm even more impressed um, with the show. Because it has more impact because of the racial element that they've added to this story. In the book, Mia's not black, and she's like a, you know... I would say middle-class white woman growing up, white girl growing up. So um, that sort of dichotomy is not the same. It's really more about the choices they made to get to where they are, if anything. Um, but but so as we dive deeper into this quote, I want to talk a little bit about Elena's obsession with the rules because this comes up from episode one all the way through it. Like this chick loves Shaker Heights because – of all of its rules, one of which we we get a glimpse of in this episode when the siren goes off to tell trick-or-treaters that they have to go home at 7 o'clock. I did love that, though. <laughs> I, yeah. Uh, like, I was like, can you relate? Do you love rules? Are you a person I mean, I love rules? that rule. I love that Halloween <laughs> is over at a certain time. It's just a good night. Don't knock on my door past 7 o'clock. I thought that was great. Very effective. The grass, crazy. Halloween yeah, rules? cannot wait. Know. <laughs> Carolyn, what do you think? Like, is she just over the top? I mean, obviously she's over the top with her love of rules, but d- do you relate to this, like, desire for order at all? Uh, no, not really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not at all. I am not a huge, spoiler alert, a huge rule follower in my life. Um, I kind of look at them as, like, loose guidelines mostly. Except, you know, right now everyone should stay the fuck inside. Um... But mm-hmm. I I think that Elena's, like, rule following is, again, to me, she is just that kind of person who wants everything perfect. Right. Uh, and, and perfect is following, you know, the standards set before you. So that mean, if that means shutting down your door for trick-or-treaters when that alarm goes off, then so be it. <laughs> So on the other side of this quote is Mia and, you know, it's a fair quote. Like if we're talking in general, right, the fact that Elena is a rich white lady 
means that she just has good choices that even when she has to make a choice they're probably both pretty good choices and like you can't really go wrong but in the case of these two women it's like the issues Mia has that we know about so far don't stem from her having had limited choices right like she is choosing a crazy vagabond lifestyle she is choosing to haul her daughter all over kingdom come every couple of months like no one's making her do that in fact it's incredibly expensive to do something like that it's much more you know um financially sound to stay in one place if you can you know, moving costs a lot of money so like it just almost rings hollow, like, unless unless you bring BB into the situation, right? BB is the one who's being put in a shitty situation and who has bad choices. Yeah, BB is the one who has no other choice before her. And that is how she ended up having to uh, leave her child at a fire station. Mm-hmm. Mia, and that's what bothered me so much with this drop of having being able to sell her art and everything... Everything we know about Mia, she claims like she didn't have good choices. I think she just makes bad choices. Mm -hmm. And she had lots of opportunity and continues to have lots of opportunities to make better choices. Rebecca, what do you think? I mean, I completely agree. I think that we don't know enough yet. You know, we don't have any of Mia's backstory. Mm -hmm. We don't know what her educational background was, where she even grew up. So to say that it's simply... Let me back up and say, I think Mia likes to reduce things very quickly into a racial dynamic mm-hmm. that then she feels she gets to use as an excuse for bad personal behavior. I think that makes the whole dynamic and whole conversation more complicated because, yes, we can all agree that white women have an easier time than black women. So, like, that's not – no one's refuting that. I just think that Mia mm-hmm. is co-opting something for a personal justification for poor behavior, and that's problematic AF. And, like, there are some things in the book, I think, that if they choose to follow them here, um, make a good case for her actually having made a lot of bad choices when she had better options. Yes. Um, That's why, you know, it's it's tough to talk about right now because I have more backstory, mm -hmm. but it's like the show, if we're just going directly on what we've seen, it's it's not giving me any sympathy. I I just, I'm confused. Yeah. It's it's bizarre. Um, I really have virtually no idea what's going on here um so with that being said um who do you think the bad parent of the week is Hmm. Um, well we haven't talked at all about um what i can never remember her first name this is mccullough linda mccullough's sort of Mm -hmm. like manic clutching of the baby and shouting she's my baby and her sort of coming unraveled a little bit in a way that's, I think, making that dynamic a little more complicated. I think in episode three, it was pretty clear that the McCullers were able to give Mirabelle a better life than Bibi, seeing, you know, how Bibi was struggling. But now it's like Linda's obsession with keeping this baby and this sort of, like, rage she's exhibiting is going a little bit beyond maternal protection and was making me nervous. And she apologized to the baby a couple times. Oh, I'm really sorry. But it's making us kind of think, like, is this the best place for her? And it's clear that when they're out on their walk right before the press accosts her she says you know okay so see this wasn't that bad like she's afraid to leave her house mm-hmm. which really I I felt like you know she is definitely coming undone and when she screams at, at the press and goes running back into her house but my heart breaks for her because this is a woman that we have learned you know went through multiple miscarriages and clearly had to deliver a stillborn baby mm-hmm. which I mean, I, I think, like, there, her, she's probably at the end of her emotional rope anyway. So this situation that she's in where she thought she finally got her happy ending, mm-hmm. and now that's slipping out of her grasp, I can totally understand her just having this complete meltdown. Um, so I'm willing to excuse her behavior um, in, in that context. Yeah, I yeah, I think so too. Like here's a woman who thinks like she's finally I I mean any mother who thinks her child's not life exactly, but like basically her child could be taken away from her is going to unravel a little bit. And especially if you have this horrible history of losing one kid after another basically. And I don't think she's at all the worst parent. I just think that she should be no. considered 
now because she is starting okay, to yeah. show more of this <laughs> instability yeah. that we might need to take note of further down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fair. I think going forward, she is going to be considered as one of the moms in this situation. Yeah. For this episode, though, I do think that I'm going to have to continue to say that uh, Mia still stands as as the the worst the the, the worst mom. The bad parenting award for me goes to Mia mm-hmm. just because I do feel like her choices are not always in the best interest of her child. And I'm beginning to question a lot of her intentions and her integrity and uh, and and her motivations. Yeah, I think the thing that put me over the edge on Mia this week was the fact that she did all of this for Bibi, who basically has told her, like, well, lady, but at, like you're making this harder. You're making this worse. And meanwhile, she's she knows how important it is for Pearl to stay here, how much she wants to stay there. And not only is she putting, um, you know, just their housing at risk by getting and her job stability at risk by getting into a fight with Elena, but um, she's telling her she can't see like the only friends she's ever had, basically. You know, it, there's just no no concern or regard whatsoever for the daughter. So, Rebecca, do you have another something other... Other than uh, Sorry. Linda Linda McCullough, or uh, was that it? <laughs> no, no. I think that mine is for sure going to be Mia this week, unfortunately. Um, I hope that this show is going to lean more into the nuances of her character, and it's not just going to continue to be this, because it is kind of a disappointing portrayal of the character at this point. So I'm hoping that that course corrects soon. But yeah, for sure this week, it's got to be Mia. All right, so uh, let's move on to 90s spotting. What's everybody's favorite 90s trend this week? Mine was for sure when Lexi is having her, like, I'm a sexual being conversation now, and they were playing Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls in the background. I love that. That was just a a lovely (laughs) little touch, because you can't escape that song. That song is everywhere, especially then. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was nice. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we already talked a lot about the Spice Girls, but that is such a, like, peak 90s thing. Um, so I just I just loved that. I definitely loved that Spice Girls uh, reference. And also just seeing a Walkman gave me such a sense of nostalgia. <laughs> I mean, I know you see it in like the opening credits, but like I can remember, uh, you know, I, I can remember having a Walkman and then getting a Discman. I think by like this point I had a Discman in 97. I, I think that that was around mm-hmm. the time that we had those. Um, but just kind of that sense, it gave me that sense of nostalgia for that. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was definitely the Lilith Fair on the cover of Newsweek. Um, (laughs) I was so gung-ho for Lilith Fair when it came out. I went to at least a couple of them. Um, did anyone else go to the, I mean, Rebecca, you were like a baby, but did you make it to one, Carolyn? No. Uh, no, I, I am, I have not always sought out live music Mm. um i think at this point like in high school uh mix 98.5 which i don't even think exists anymore which was a boston radio station they used to do like mix fest every like spring Mm -hmm. and they would bring in you know big name and it was a big free concert at like city hall plaza in boston and you so i saw like bare naked ladies and 10,000 maniacs oh my and god like i that. saw one of those in hartford for sure like one of those like radio dj yeah, things with I'm the sure. bare naked ladies and a bunch yeah. of other people sixpence none the richer like and i was young but i was <laughs> yes, you just brought yeah. back like a deep latent I, memory I think, that i have repressed right and i think the cranberries too played one year um so to me like that was like my big music fest was every year it was like mix fest came around and um, it was just this big free music fest of pop glory. Um, so no, I did not make it to a Lilith Fair. I, w- I went to, I think probably two, but the first one, which I went to, you know, like probably in 1997, um, the very first one, I went to at the Meadows in Hartford and I saw like Patty Griffin and I don't know, does anyone else remember Imani Coppola? She had like one hit. She on the um, on one of the side stages and my friend Patrick and I, who, um, you know, we basically follow musical lesbians around the country together. um, We 
we were right up front, like waving to a Monte Coppola and she like, she loved him. And then uh, we met a, a lovely. What was les- her hit? Um, it had something to do. It had like cowboy in the title or something. She Where it was like, I'm going to pack my bags Cole. and ride my horse or something. And she kept, I don't know. Oh. It was weird. Um, and then I, we were watching, I think Suzanne Vega on the main stage and we're standing next to this lesbian couple who was more obsessed with Suzanne Vega than anyone has ever been obsessed with anything. Like they, they were so We had Suzanne Vega at Bridge Street once and the fans <laughs> yeah. were crazy. Like I've never seen such I, crazy people before. Yeah, oh my it's, gosh. Like she wrote that one song about sitting in a diner and now everybody and and Luca, right? She also did My Name is Luca and like uh Yep. And people yeah. are obsessed. But it was great. It was like um I think, you know, the lineup changed from venue to venue, depending on who could be there. But I think I saw Natalie Merchant and Bonnie Raitt one year. I don't think it was the first year, but I saw um, who was the girl who did the uh, was she in the Shaggy song? She she did a song with Shaggy. It wasn't and I think me. She'll... Say that again. It wasn't me. That Shaggy song. I'm not sure if it was that song. No, then... are you thinking of like Dido? No, who no, did the no. song with Eminem? No, she, I, Dido actually, uh, that song that Eminem sampled was on the mix CD that the Little Fair gave out of all like the new up and coming art- artists. Like when you went in, they gave you a CD. And so it had that song by Dido. It had a Patty Griffin song, like a um, woman whose name I can't pronounce, a, a whole bunch of people on there. But um, uh, no, she did. And she or maybe it wasn't the Shaggy song. Maybe it was with like Wyclef. Um, Wyclef Jean. Yeah. Wyclef Jean. Or Praz, because I cannot really tell them apart. I, I, the only thing I got out of the Fugees was Lauren Hill. But um, well, um, you know, it's funny because oh, like, it was the, the you know what it was. Sorry, it was the Bullworth song. She did the bull the song from the Bullworth soundtrack. If you remember that, no and, idea. Nope. Oh nope. God, what? I can't remember. <laughs> got nothing. Again. All right. But I, I always think of. Lilith Fair with Indigo Girls. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't even know if they played at Lilith Fair, but they seem like a Lilith Fair kind of thing. Not only only did they play at Lilith Fair, they were like the center of all the press. Because every time you read a story or saw someone doing an interview about Lilith Fair, it would be like Sarah McLaughlin and Natalie Merchant, like who don't ever want to come out of their dressing rooms. And like it's all these introverted female singer-songwriters and then the Indigo Girls show up and they're just like, come on, everybody, come on outside. We're from the South. We're going to force you to talk to people. And like, well, and- there you go. So <laughs> I was right in remembering them being attached to Lilith Fair. But yeah. the point is, is over the past couple of days, as all these musicians mm-hmm. are doing, you know, social distancing concerts via the interwebs, uh, I had some like ad on my Instagram or Facebook or something for a Indigo Girls concert home concert and it just cracked me up because I have not wasted a thought on the Indigo Girls in like 20 years well Uh, you're wrong the the Indigo Girls are the best and I love them so very much yeah and it made me think about them and think about them fondly and Mm -hmm. actually like you know pull up some Indigo Girls music and I was like yeah I did like this (laughs) I did not watch their home concert but it was uh it was funny that they just kind of popped up and then this episode, then I was watching this episode, and all of a sudden there's all this talk about Lilith Fair, and I was like, oh, everything's coming together. Um, jumping ahead, now that we spent all this time talking about music, mm-hmm. and you mentioned them, the Fugees, this Fugees uh, Killing Me Softly song oh, was yeah. my favorite song reference or uh, soundtrack item in this episode. I was a big Fugees fan, huge, still am. I, I still have that circulating in my playlist. <laughs> Yeah, so do I, actually. I listen to Ready or Not, like, on the mm-hmm. regular. Yeah, Rebecca, what was your favorite song? I'd probably have to say it goes to this, my original thing is Joe Chasing Waterfalls because I just don't recognize mm-hmm. most of this music now, and I feel very out of date. I do have to say, mm-hmm. in general, I feel like the musical choices, though some of them are nostalgic and fun, are weaker than Big Little Lies. Like, Big Little Lies, it was, like, a struggle to pick one a lot of the time. And I find that it's, like, we're all kind of – you know, reaching for the same few musical cues. And I wish that there was more music in the show. Well, I think that they aren't utilizing 90s music to its glory. Um, I I don't think that music is a major character in this show. I think they just drop a track in there for that 
kind of nostalgia for like for cultural that reference point for the yeah. cultural reference right um a show that did use 90s music as a wonderful character was uh netflix's everything sucks which is a great 90s and that that actually will serve as my uh endorsement You've really uh, overlapped all of these very well today, Carolyn. I'm like connecting. I am like getting all these through lines. You are on it today. But everything, everything sucks on Netflix is um, kind of deals with a lot. It's a nice little, um, it's a nice little duo with this show in some ways because it (coughs) follows. Excuse me, it follows ninety coronavirus uh, teenagers. Yes, I have no. Actually, I'm just choking on champagne. If we want to (laughs) know. Uh, but it follows this uh, group of 90s teenagers. It deals with like coming of age in the 90s sexuality and the way they use music is like big, big little lies level perfection, but with 90s. So go seek that out. It's on Netflix. And it's like I was so disappointed they only did one season. Um. Well, Rebecca, do you want to? Well, actually, Carolyn, do you just want to finish that off? And what's your other recommendation? Oh, uh, well, I guess we'll call that, I kind of have two, like, that that could be like a high or low brow, depending on how you see it. And my other one is uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which I was going to call my high brow. Some people would argue, but I really do think that Larry David, come at me, is like a total comedic genius. If you disagree, fine. But I think he is one of the, I think of our time, I think as a comedy, from a comedy standpoint, he is true genius. And um, it makes me too uncomfortable. I wish I could enjoy that show. No, I just, I I want to jump out of my skin. It's like Ricky Gervais on the British office levels uncomfortable and I just don't enjoy it. Oh my God. I, we are so on the same wavelength. No, see, and I loved, again, if you're going to go back to the 90s, like Seinfeld was my one of my favorite oh, shows. Yeah, I don't like Seinfeld either. <laughs> so, yeah, if you couldn't, if you couldn't love Seinfeld, I obviously that's Larry David. So it, you're yep. not going to um, be able to make yep. a job. But Larry David is just so clever in so many things that, and, and, and his comedy does like poke at you in those uncomfortable places. And I love that. And that's why I'm calling it my highbrow. Larry David, um, like Curb Your Enthusiasm is a show that like when I watch it, I think it's funny, but I can't bring myself to watch it most of the time. But Brian really loves it. So we end up watching it every once in a while. Um, But I feel the exact same way about the office, the British office, Rebecca, like I just cringe the entire time and I can't stand it and I have to turn it. It's unwatchable. It's yeah, I, that's that's garbage to me. Total garbage. But curb your enthusiasm is perfection. I I really I really think it's great. So actually, hmm. I think I I just came up with a new. I don't know if it's highbrow or lowbrow based on this conversation. So I'm gonna s- skip ahead of you for oh. a minute, Rebecca. So my yeah, highbrow, I guess. <laughs> I, my highbrow was gonna be Watchmen on HBO because. Oh, um, so good. I was trying to think of something that tackles racial issues and does it well and doesn't just yes. like, even though it's so overt in that show, like it's to a large degree what it's about, it does it in a way that you're not just like, okay, tell me something I don't know. You know what I mean? Like it's really interesting and it yep. dives into, like it kind of, shows you the stuff that we're used to talking about but that's not the center of it it's sort of yep. goes so much deeper and so i think if you're looking for a show that's going to tackle racial issues well you've got to watch um watchmen and then because we're talking about ricky gervais being uncomfortable and making everybody uncomfortable mm-hmm. um, there's a show he did and now I forget which streaming service it's on, unfortunately, but it's called Afterlife. And um, it's a British show, so there's only like six episodes or something. And um, why do they do that? It's so weird. The Brits do these like six episode series. So I don't wow. know. Fleabag I, was like that, too. Yeah. I mean, there's an argument to be made. You don't get a bunch of shitty episodes in between. True. But, um, True. Sorry. But so 
Ricky Gervais is a guy who's recently lost his wife and he's just a complete malcontent and is going around being an asshole to everybody all the time. And it's a little bit like a man called Ove, actually, or Uve. Um, because when I was describing that book to Brian, he was like, wait, is this just like Afterlife? And I was like, well, the book came out before Afterlife, I think. So it's the other way around. But um, it's kind of Ricky Gervais at his, you know, angry, um, caustic best. And um, you just get to watch him as all these other like sweet people around him kind of bring him out of his shell. So I, I, I mean, it's British, so I hesitate to call it lowbrow, but I'm going to call it lowbrow because <laughs> I don't have anything else. Oh, the Brits so, can Rebecca. be lowbrow. Um, yeah, mine are like sort of interchangeably highbrow, lowbrow, depending on your sensibilities. <laughs> so my first one, which I was going to personally classify as highbrow, is Ozark is back for season three on Netflix. I watched the first episode last night and really enjoyed it. I think that... Jason Bateman is one of those actors that I didn't like when he did comedic roles, but I have grown to really like him through his work on Ozark. I think he's delivering a really interesting performance. And Laura Linney is just a queen. So Ozark season three, Netflix. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a good show. And Julia Garner steals every scene she's in, and she's an actress I think we should all definitely watch. She's amazing. Um, And then my other alternatively lowbrow, highbrow um, is Mrs. Fletcher's first season on HBO came out a couple months ago. And it's about a woman who gets a divorce and her uh, only son goes off to college and she kind of like experiences a sexual awakening. And it's just very clever and funny and like a nice frothy alternative to all of the terror on the news right now. So if you've got HBO, Mrs. Fletcher's a fun... I was going to say like... I love Katherine Hahn, and so I wanted to watch that. Like, yes. she is perhaps the best. Like, her performance on Transparent as the rabbi just like brings me to tears. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, but I've heard mixed reviews about that show, so I haven't watched it. I really liked it. I was honestly, I actually talked to one of our nose panelists about it, and how it was like unexpectedly delightful. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like not super into the whole like older woman reclaims her sexual identity narrative, but it was done in a really like fun way. And she explores her sexuality in a way that was kind of interesting. And this all kind of takes place in the frame of her going to a writer's group and kind of getting back into academia at a later life. It was just fun. It was, it was well done. And it's a parallel. uh, Her story is in parallel with her son's story going to college and he being like your typical like trip style, toxic jock, that all of a sudden is like not thriving in college because he's so toxic and he's suddenly getting called out, you know, like for violating, you know, what some people would call PC culture, but it's just like not being an asshole culture. He really doesn't thrive. And so it's kind of like their stories are mirroring each other. She thinks she's going to really struggle without her son. He thinks he's going to thrive without his mom. And then and they both end up kind of subject of subverting their own expectations. So it's interesting. It's, it's worth a watch, especially when everyone's got nothing else to do but watch TV. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, with that, we'll get back to watching TV and uh, be back with episode five next week.